Hello, my friends. I want to invite you to gather around God's Word with me uh, this morning. Got a little confession to make. Like, um, I think I've forgotten more about the Bible than, than I know. Like, there's some, there's some people who just have better brains than other people, and I don't have a great brain. I mean, I, I have the ability to do a lot of work, but I don't have the ability to, like, if I preach a sermon two years ago, I probably have purged a lot of that information by the time that I've, I've gotten here. Jim Blaha's brain works much differently, right? Uh, well, that wasn't meant to be a joke. <laughs> like... He's probably watching this and be like, no, I wasn't meaning to like, but like, like Jim will teach, teach something like seven years ago, and then, and then he kind of can hold on to it for like seven years. And so um, all this to say, you know, the way that I, I do sermons is I, I plan out, you know, we, we preach, um, we exegete text by preaching straight through a book, and so we're going through Matthew right now. And uh, I, I start by making some sort of an outline that lives online, and uh, all of our staff uses it to come up with music and stuff. And so I, I don't have to show up on Monday and wonder what I'm preaching. It's just there. You know, it's just, it's there. And there might be some minor adjustments. But, I, you know, I came to uh, the, the text this week. And, um, and I must say that when, when I first opened it up, um, I, I thought to myself, well, there's just another um, couple of healings here. And, and there's not much to build a sermon around. That's, that's what I thought. And uh, shame on me. I, I mean, I even considered going like, do we skip? Do we skip it? Um, now, I kept reading. I did. And, and, I, and I kept praying and thinking. And I got to tell you, what was really cool is that the Lord did what he always does. Um, he made his word really come alive. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he, he, he made his word come alive. And, and I was able to really grasp it well. And, and so I want to say, here I am on Sunday, and I cannot imagine us skipping this section. Um, in fact, I, I love today's text. I love what the Spirit did in, in revealing this, and I, and I think you're going to love it as well. So uh, let me ground this week's text in context. Um, we've been reading the, Matthew's Gospel, and uh, ever since Jesus came down from the Sermon on the Mount, he's been demonstrating his authority uh, two weeks ago, I even asked you to underline that word in your Bible, the word in Matthew 9, authority. Uh, now, the great theme of Matthew's gospel, like the whole thing, is that Jesus is the great king of kings. We've been talking about that for months. Um, Matthew gives us Jesus' lineage right there in the beginning of Matthew, and the whole point of that lineage is that it's the lineage of a king. And the Magi, when they show up, remember the wise men of the Magi, they bring gifts that are fit for a king. And King Herod, who's the king at the time, is threatened by Jesus' birth because uh, King Herod knows that Jesus is this prophesied king to come. There's just so much more about that that we don't have time to get into. Just know that all of the imagery in Matthew's gospel is pointing to Jesus as king. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins teaching his people about what it looks like for them to live into his kingdom. Just, just here's, here's what I mean by that. So like the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount begins like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You, you see about the, Matthew begins to be about this undertones of a king and his kingdom. And, and when Jesus comes down after he's given the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew's gospel starts to show us all these pictures of Jesus. Jesus is doing all these healings and all these miraculous things, and you could miss what was happening if you didn't look close. 
Because what Matthew is showing is that Jesus has this ever-expanding authority. He shows us his authority to heal diseases, which is, I guess, an authority over the body and over biology. He has this authority to drive out demons. He has this authority to even speak and stop the wind and the waves. And and two weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus in this home, and they brought to him, remember, this man on the mat, and, and Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive this man's sins, the man who was paralyzed. And then to prove that he did have the authority to forgive sins, Jesus says to the scribes, which is easier, to say to a a, a paralyzed man, uh, your sins are forgiven, or to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk. Jesus is beginning to, to do this miraculous stuff, and it's beginning to bother the religious elites. He's claiming to have too much authority, and yet Jesus does not fit their mold. If you remember last week, uh, what happened is that Jesus called a tax collector named Matthew, who just happened to be the man who is writing this gospel. And, and, And Matthew's response to Jesus was immediate. Matthew follows Jesus with his life. Do you remember that? And and what Matthew does is he hosts this big dinner party at his house, and Matthew invites all of his friends over, and his friends happen to be other tax collectors and a bunch of sinners. So this is a a rowdy party. Uh, I always like this this text because I feel like it justifies me hanging out with my friends, right? Uh, uh, The Pharisees find out about this party, and they show up, and they ask the, the, the disciples of Jesus, why does Jesus eat with these sinners? You remember that? They're, they're questioning, and, and what does Jesus say? He says, it's not, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then, and then a little while later, we, at the same dinner party, after the Pharisees come by, then the disciples of John come by, and they show up at this dinner party, and you remember what the disciples of John, they said uh, uh, to Jesus and his disciples, we fast, and the Pharisees fast. How come you, Jesus and the disciples, how come y'all don't fast? And if you remember the answer to all these questions, both the ones to the Pharisees and to John's disciples, he, he answers them so masterfully. And if you want to hear about those responses, that's not really today's sermon, but you can go and listen to last week's sermon. I'm trying to set the stage for today's story. And, and the stage is basically this. All of these religious leaders are coming to Jesus. They're all trying to figure out how Jesus fits. And, and they're all bothered by Jesus' claims of authority. They're bothered bothered by this dinner party of sinners. Who does he think he is? He may think he has authority, but we run Jerusalem. That's kind of of what's happening here in this story. Okay, that's the context. Let's get into the text itself. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, as we read Matthew 9, 18 through 26. Before we read, let's pray. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you open our eyes to understand rightly and clearly your word. We thank you for revealing yourself through this gospel today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord, Matthew 9, beginning in the 18th verse. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched 
the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through, throughout all the district. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Maybe you can see why I might just come to that. Maybe you you can't uh, and say, boy, it's just another couple of healings. I feel like we did healings last week and we did a healing the week before. You know, why are we just going to be talking about healings? And is there anything new to say? What what can we say that brings... uh, encouragement to the church and 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 it really teaches us by God's word well a lot and so let's begin look at verse 18 while he was saying these things to them behold a ruler came in and knelt before him saying my daughter has just died but come and lay your hands on her and she will live begins by saying while he was while he was saying these things to them that's how this verse starts i guess the question we could ask is saying what things to whom who's he talking to because what what we begin to learn is they're still at this dinner party they never left they're still there at the table with the dinner party they're still there with the sinners and they're gathered around the table and jesus has been talking to the disciples of john the baptist the pharisees had taken their turns asking the questions of Jesus. Then the disciples of John the Baptist asked their questions. Everyone was cynical of Jesus. And in the middle of all this mess of cynicism, up runs, literally runs, a man who Matthew says is a ruler. Not a lot of detail about this guy Matthew's account, but look with me at Luke 8.41. We'll put it up on the screen. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Here's what we learn from Luke's account, okay? Uh, The man who has come to Jesus is named Jairus. Jairus is referred to as a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the ruler of the synagogue would be responsible for, for keeping the synagogue in order. They would be responsible for, for planning and organizing services at the synagogue. So I don't want you to miss what's happening here because it's really interesting. When, when all of these religious groups have come to the dinner party to call Jesus into question, and the subcontext is basically, you're not one of us. You're not one of the religious establishment. We all reject you, Jesus. All it takes is this little tragedy And here comes Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, at the same dinner. And I like to imagine that the Pharisees are still there. Matthew says that Jesus' disciples are there, and the sinners are there, the tax collectors are there. And and here comes the the ruler of the synagogue, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet in desperation. You see, Jairus is the very picture of, of, of desperation. If you ever want a picture of desperation, look no further than a parent trying to save their dying child. 
What would you do to save your child? And like, I was, I was, we were in Belize recently, and we were driving down this highway. It's, it's one of the coolest highways in all of Belize. It's called the Hummingbird Highway. It's one of the, of the greatest highways in the world as far as, like, if you had a sports car that you could take the top off and you wanted to drive down, this is one of those roads, right? It, it, it bends, and it's in, it's in the jungle mountains. And, and on either side of you is the most dense jungle you have ever seen with these rolling mountains. Now, you know that these jungles are full of all kinds of creepy crawlies, right? I, it, it's bad. Giant lizards, I mean, you can see them on the tree branches. Giant lizards about this size in all different colors, orange and green. The, millions of frogs, like it gets at night, they just hear all different noises and, and snakes and spiders and jaguars, right? That's, the, that's like the, the predator in Belize is the jaguar, which happens, somebody told me it was the strongest cat uh, in, in nature, that, that it could kill a deer and with one arm climb a tree and with the other arm carry the deer up into it. Um, so I, I figured it could probably do that with you. And so, so Bill, I'm driving with my buddy Bill up there, and he looks up at, at this peak in the jungle. It's probably 15 miles away. And the question he asked me was this, how long do you think it would take you to walk there? <laughs> and I, I said to him, we're never going to find out. Like, that's just something I'm not interested at all. And, you know, Bill wanted to up the stakes a little bit, said, well, what if your daughter was up there and she needed help? And I said, well, best of luck, girl. Um, <laughs> no, I did. I told him, I said, well, I guess I'd, in that case I'd give it a shot and we'd find out, right? So, so the point I, I want to make about Jairus here, right? He demonstrates that a father will do just about anything to save his child, despite the social cost of what he basically does here is um, he's going to out himself and insult the Pharisees. He's going to come off looking very foolish because Jesus is not an insider. And despite all that, Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus and he says, um, in Matthew, my daughter has just died. In Luke, he says... Uh, Something along the lines of she's, she's about to die. Why the difference? Because Matthew always shortens stories. He always shortens stories in his account. But, but, but in Matthew, he says, my daughter's just died, but come and lay a hand on her and she will live. Listen, I want to say that no one comes to Jesus unless he's called. And, and everyone who is called always comes. We say that quite often here. And sometimes part of the call to Jesus involves personal desperation. Have you ever been in a place where you were just desperate for Jesus? I, I know some theologians have gone so far as to say no one will ever come to Jesus unless they are desperate. That every person who ultimately comes to Jesus recognizes that they're desperate and they, they have this desperation because of their sins, that they are, that they are fully deserving the wrath of God and that, and that their only hope to keep them from the wrath of God and eternal death is Jesus. And they find themselves desperate for Jesus. And, and you know what's, what's interesting is that when you are desperate, it reveals what you trust. We have no record of, of Jairus going to the synagogue when his daughter is dying. We have no record of him calling a doctor when his daughter is dying. Instead, what Jairus does, 
when his daughter's life depends upon it, is that Jairus goes and he finds this man who's been going throughout the countryside demonstrating his authority over, over diseases and over demons and over the winds and the waves. Jairus is going to trust his life in desperation or his daughter's life in desperation to Jesus. And, and I guess I would, I would speak to parents now. And I would say, parents, is that a word that speaks to you? I'm not talking about medical emergencies like call 911 if, if your kid needs to go to the hospital. Please do that. I'm talking about your kids and their eternal future. Your children are, are, are great kids, but they're sinners. You know that, right? And, and one day, they, your kids will meet their maker. And that day, and for the rest of eternity, only one thing is going to matter. Did your children know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Now, if you believe that was a, a real scenario, fathers, if you believe that that was the scenario that your kids would one day face, how could you not rush through any jungle to get your kids to Jesus? You know what I mean? And yet, I want, I want to tell you that, that some parents treat church like one more extracurricular activity. And, and I want to say to you, listen, your kids don't need sports. Your kids don't need dance. Your kids need Jesus. And some of you don't recognize your children's desperation. This is ultimately a story of a father's desperation to save his daughter from death by the one who has the authority to conquer death. And it's awesome. It is. Matthew doesn't record Jesus saying a word. Look at verse 19. Like Jesus just, Jesus rose and he followed him with his disciples. Like he said, like, come on, boys, we got a 12-year-old girl to go save. There's no rebuke there, no correction. Jesus just goes to save his daughter. Now, the masterpiece of the story is desperation. And Jesus and Jerry says they leave this dinner party. What you need to see is that a lot of the people who were at that party leave with them. If you were at this dinner party yourself and, and Jairus, this you know, religious leader, comes in and says, my daughter's dying, Jesus gets up to go save her, you're probably getting up to go watch this show, right? You're like, I don't know what's going to go down, but I want to be there when it does. So this, this caravan of people is heading to Jairus' house. And look at verse 20 and 21. Look what it says. And behold... A woman who had been suffered, who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So let's talk about this woman. For 12 years she has suffered from a discharge of blood. This might be embarrassing to talk about for some, but for her it would have been like she had leprosy. A woman on her period was unclean by Jewish custom. She was not allowed to attend synagogue. Everything she touched became unclean. Luke's gospel tells us more about this woman. Luke's gospel says uh, that this woman had spent all of her money on doctors and that no one could help her. So, so what I want to suggest to you is that this too is a picture of desperation. And so it's so interesting that the word of God has linked these two stories, like, like what he's done is he's made a sandwich out of them. Like on one, we've got Jairus and his daughter, and then on the way there, we've got this woman who's, who's, who's bleeding, and then we've, on the other side again, we've got Jairus and his daughter, and, and, and they're, they're linked together. 
And everyone in this section is coming to Jesus with sheer desperation. And, and once again, it's a reminder that no one ever comes to Jesus without desperation. And this woman doesn't come to Jesus in the way we might think that she should, right? Like if, if, we're, if we're being judgy about what it should look like when you come to Jesus, you should come to him, you should fall at his feet, you should worship him and say, Jesus, forgive me, I, I believe in you, I trust you. Um, like her encounter with Jesus, it reeks of insecurity and it, and it reeks of superstition. It's just not like good theology. Like we wouldn't tell people like, if you want to trust Jesus, grab his tassel, right? She isn't confessing her sins, and she isn't asking for forgiveness. Instead, she says, if only I can touch the fringe of his garment. You see, every, every Jewish man in Jesus' day had four tassels that they wore on the four corners of their cloak. And um, the tassels were worn kind of as a vis- visual reminder that that person followed the word of the Lord. And in desperation, what we read is this, this woman reaches out and she takes hold of one of those tassels. And, and, and you, you remember, Jesus is there and he's, he's got the whole crowd around him. People are bumping into him at all sides. And, and, and look at verse 22. It says this, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And, and instantly, the woman was made well. This woman's touch was... It was supposed to make everything unclean because she was unclean. So when she touched Jesus' tassel, she should have made that unclean. But as we have seen in the past with with the leper, Jesus makes makes unclean people fully clean. And, And Jesus treats her with such tenderness. He calls her daughter. He tells her to take heart because her faith has made her well. And even though she came to Jesus in a way which we might look at and say it's superstitious, still, Jesus is gracious to her. I guess we could say that it's probably true that you don't have to have perfect theology in order to come to Jesus. You just come to him in faith and and trust that he will heal you. Some of you in this room might need to hear that. And I don't know how long this encounter took, this encounter with this woman, but I know if I'm Jairus, right, and my daughter is possibly dying over there, I'm in a hurry. Like, I'm, I'm kind of going like, great, great. Are you healed? Are you good? Like, we got a place to go. I, I mean, I bet Jairus felt like, well, I think I put my faith in the right man. This, this is a good sign that, that he's healed this woman. But if, but if Luke's timeline is correct and his little girl is sick and dying, I'm sure he's ready for Jesus to keep on walking. Look in verses 23 and 24. It says this. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the, and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. You see, when, when Jesus and Jairus get to Jairus' home, they're greeted by bad news. And the bad news is, is, is this flute and the loud moans of professional mourners. Do you know this? The all this was to signify that the girl had died. Jewish custom was such that even if you were a poor person in that time, you were expected to hire uh, maybe instrumentation, like a flute was pretty common, but, but definitely several professional mourners to grieve and cry outside your home. Uh, it's just a cultural thing. I don't get it at all. But they would have professional mourners who would just stay out there and just, they would just wail and moan. And, w- and when Jesus says, go away to these people, the girl is not dead. She's only sleeping. Like it only takes an instant 
for their phony tears to turn into instant laughter. And they're laughing at Jesus. And Jesus goes in to see this young girl. And Matthew, as I told you earlier, in his, in his brevity of storytelling, does not give us many details, does he? He's just really short. Look at verse 25. This is all it says. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And Luke's gospel doesn't have much more. It, it just says he tells her, child, arise. Uh, uh, Mark's gospel, he says to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. So let me make some observations, if I can, about today's reading. In the midst of all these religious groups that are confronting Jesus and, and they're all doubting his authority, the gospel begins to show us how when people found themselves in desperation, Jesus was the person they were turning to to trust. Jairus is very much a Jewish insider. Yet nothing he saw in the synagogue truly offered hope for his little girl. He trusted her to Jesus even when it would have been a seen as a betrayal to his peer group. And, and there was a great beauty. Like, I, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a great beauty in the linking of these two stories. There's, there's two unnamed women. They're both unclean. The little girl is unclean by death. The woman is unclean because of the hemorrhaging. Both girls are linked by the number 12, right? In Jewish custom, I don't know if you know this, a, a girl becomes a woman when she was 12 years and one day old. A, a boy, it would be a year later at 13 and one day, and that's when they would have, you know, the celebration that they have there for them. Um, but at 12 years and one day, that was kind of considered the, the time that a, a girl became a woman. It's about this time that she would begin to experience the changes that make her a woman. 12 years. And in the very next story, we have a woman who has been horribly plagued by hemorrhaging blood for 12 years nonstop. Do you think this is a coincidence? I don't. I don't know if, if I have fully understood the significance, but there is something to do here in these two stories with Jesus having compassion on womanhood. Right? He tells the woman, my daughter, your faith has made you well. He tells the 12-year-old girl, little girl, I say to you, arise. There's two stories of, of two touches, right? One woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Jesus touches the little girl by the hand. Two unclean women, two lives restored, two stories of desperation. But in a true sense, Scripture is saying something to all of us, right? All of us are in very true ways unclean. All of us are in very true ways under the curse of death. And our only hope is the touch of Jesus upon our lives. And it's the only hope for our children. And I'm going to leave you with one final thought today. Desperation makes people come to Jesus. Do you know that? That, that desperation makes people come to Jesus? Desperation makes fathers like Jairus worship at the feet of Jesus to save their children. So let me ask the fathers in this room, do you desperately want your children to know Jesus? And what are you doing about it? Are you really desperate? 
Man, if you are, lead your family. Demonstrate what true faith looks like. I wish I knew more fathers who were desperate to make sure their children knew the lordship of Jesus. But honestly, I don't see that much. Instead, I see mothers and fathers who seem unaware of the condition of sin that threatens eternity for their children. I see a lot of families distracted by other things, by lakes and balls. This is a world crammed full of distractions. Everything is meant to distract you from the one thing that matters, that Jesus saves sinners who come to him by faith. Desperation is what makes hopeless people reach out for the hem of Jesus' garment, garment. Excuse me. So, if you find yourself desperate this morning for the healing that Jesus offers by the forgiveness of sins, I suggest you follow the lead of Jairus. Come before Jesus and plead for his healing. Or follow the, the lead of the unnamed woman in our story and reach out and take a hold of Jesus this morning. But you must come to him and you must do so by faith. If he is calling you this morning, you will come. So let's take some time to be in prayer this morning. I, I want to invite you to do that. I'll start the prayer and, and then I'm going to leave everybody some time to to pray in the silence of this room, to pray on your desperation, to pray about distractions. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your name is holy in all the world. We come as those who love you and love your son. Hear our prayers and, and our pleas for those we love. Thank you for these images of desperation and, and these images of great faith in your word this morning. Thank you for the illustration of the two women who are healed by the touch of Jesus. Thank you for the illustration of the faith of Jairus and the faith of the unnamed woman who both go to Jesus in desperation to find healing. So hear now the silent prayers of our heart as we express to you our desperation for the healing of sin that only you can bring, Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear our silent prayers. Father, by your spirit, bring conviction of sin that drives us to desperation, that drives us to confession of sin, that drives us beyond that to repentance of that sin. We thank you for the promise of forgiveness that you give to us when we bring our sins and confess them before you and repent. Christ, to you be all glory and honor in your church forever and ever. And all the church said, Amen. Amen.